You are listening to Pastor Fred Neal III of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, The Kingdom of God, Are You In? Based on the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 28, recorded on Sunday, April 30th, 2017. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Fred as he preaches. Well, let's go ahead and get into the message today. Our text is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 28. I want to read this, and then we're going to go ahead and take it apart piece by piece. And hopefully uh, you have a map, a message application points in front of you. If you can get that out and go ahead and be prepared to fill in, take notes, write down anything significant that God speaks to you through this passage today. Let me read Mark 1. 14 through 28. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered into the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God." But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came to him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee." And so very early on in, the, in Mark's gospel, he introduces the ministry of Jesus immediately after telling us about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist came preparing the way, telling people to make straight the path for the coming of the Lord. And then John's act of baptizing Jesus and then Jesus is taken into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Immediately after this, we find out that Jesus begins his ministry with an announcement His announcement is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, the first thing we need to do is talk about what does this mean, the kingdom of God. And then we can look at what our response to that should be. It's an important question for us to answer to understand this passage. What is meant by the kingdom of God? Well, this can be a difficult question to answer simply. But I think the kingdom of God encompasses many important ideas in the Bible, and there are at least two major phases of the kingdom of God. And so when you hear the phrase, the kingdom of God, used in the Bible, 
It, it can refer to se- several different things, but usually it's one of these two phases. The first phase is the current phase of the kingdom of God. In this current phase of the kingdom of God, Satan has been defeated. Sin has been paid for by Christ on the cross. And now all who desire to be citizens of this kingdom can come into his kingdom through repentance and by trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross. We call this being born again. Sometimes we talk about being saved. That's what it means to repent of your sin and to trust in and to believe in the work of Jesus. What we often call the gospel. As Pastor Mike pointed out last week, gospel just means great news. In this context, it means the great news about Jesus. The great news about Jesus is that he died for our sins, took our place on the cross so that we could be forgiven and be made citizens of the kingdom of God. In this phase of the kingdom, we coexist with other people here on the earth, people who aren't citizens of this kingdom. And our role in this kingdom is to actively invite them to join us to say to them, would you come and join us as citizens in this kingdom? For now, though, I want us to look at what the kingdom of God is. It is the current invisible, according to Luke 17, verse 20. It is an invisible kingdom that flows from the earthly work of Jesus, especially his work on the cross that we can enter into through being born again. That's Phase one, that's the current phase of the kingdom of God that we find ourselves in today. Sometimes when the biblical writers use this phrase, they're referencing the future phase of the kingdom of God. The future phase of the kingdom of God is when Jesus will come back to the earth and he will rule on earth and all other earthly kingdoms will cease to exist. And this invisible kingdom of God will become visible and it will endure forever. And that's the day that we hope for. That's the day that we long for, the day when Christ will return and he will put away all other earthly kingdoms, including the one we live in, the United States of America. And he will replace those kingdoms. And he will replace those kings or those rulers and those leaders. And he himself will be the king over his creation forever. So we have two phases, the current invisible phase by which we enter into and become citizens of this kingdom through repentance, through being born again, through believing in Jesus and trusting in his work on the cross. Then we have this future phase when Christ will return to the earth, establish his kingdom here on earth and remove all other kingdoms. And that, that phase of the kingdom of God will last throughout eternity. And so here on, the, on your map, you'll see this. This is what I want us to understand about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is currently an invisible kingdom made up of citizens who have joined by repenting and being born again. And so Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God being at hand is actually an invitation. It's an invitation to come. He says to repent and believe. Rep- the time is fulfilled, he says. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' announcement, is a, it's an invitation, but let's be very clear. Entrance into this kingdom only can come in one way. Repentance and believing in the gospel. 
There's no other way into the kingdom of God. There is no amount of good works that you can do to get into the kingdom of God. There is no amount of money that you can give. There is, there is no amount of church attendance or volunteerism that you can contribute to your entrance into the kingdom of God. There is but one way in. And it's exactly what Jesus starts his ministry with. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the only way you get in. It's the only way you become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Yes, we are saved by grace, but it is a grace that produces repentance and belief in the gospel. If you have not repented and believed in the gospel, then you are not a citizen of this kingdom. You cannot come in any way you want. You cannot make your own gate into the kingdom of God. Jesus says this is the way in to repent and to believe in the good news about him. If you, if you watch many NFL games, you probably saw this past NFL season, the NFLshop.com commercials. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. I might be able to refresh your memory. What they do is they take a prominent NFL star, somebody that most people are going to recognize and know if you're watching a football game. And, and, and the, he has the official uh, apparel of his team on. I remember one had Jason Witten on. So he has, he has the official Dallas Cowboys t-shirt on. And he's saying about what he had to do to earn the right to wear the official Dallas Cowboys apparel. He's talking about all the passes that he caught, all the touchdowns that he made and all the hits that he took and all the plays that he had to memorize and and, and the the 10 concussions that you have to have and go through to earn the right to wear this official gear. And you get the impression that that's the only way in. That's the only way you get to wear that shirt is if if you become like him. If you become like him and go through what he goes through, then you earn the right to wear this shirt. And then the camera pans back and you see this like scrawny 12-year-old kid with the same exact shirt on. And he says, my mom bought it for me on NFLshop.com, you know, and they're trying to get you to go and buy the official team gear. Well, the kingdom of, uh, the kingdom of God is not like the NFLshop.com. You can't just go on and, and purchase your entrance. There's only one way. The only way to get the right to become a citizen of God is to repent and to believe in the gospel. To be born again. To have Jesus take your sin away. To have him forgive you and to give you new life. And if you haven't done that, then you are not a citizen of this kingdom. And it doesn't matter how long you've been going to church. It it doesn't matter you know, the family that you come from or the the other things that you do with your life. If you don't repent and believe in the gospel, you don't get in. And so Jesus begins his ministry by saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. After this announcement of the kingdom, Mark shows us some of the important things we need to know about life in this kingdom. He shows us this by telling us what Jesus does next. In fact, there are, there are three things that I think Mark reveals to us in this passage about life in the kingdom of God. Let's, let's look at them. First, Jesus collects followers. Verse 16. 
It says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Here's something that Mark wants us to know about the kingdom, and it's the next thing on your map. In the kingdom of God, Jesus calls people to follow him. In the kingdom of God, Jesus calls people to follow him. It's the very first thing Mark tells us about Jesus' public ministry, that he calls four men to stop what they are doing and follow him. The interesting thing about Mark's account, as we'll see in a few minutes when we look at Luke's account, is Mark gives us like next to no details. This is a little bit characteristic of Mark. You'll see this throughout the book. He he really just, he gets right to the point. He doesn't slow down to tell you a lot of details. He just keeps moving. He's not trying to use a lot of words. He's not trying to take up a lot of paper. I like like what Pastor Dave said this week when we we were talking about this passage and some of the other passages in Mark. Uh, about Mark's gospel. He said, Mark's not like, like a college student writing a term paper. He's not trying to just write all kinds of extra information and give all kinds of irrelevant details. He just simply says, Jesus saw these men fishing. He calls them and they follow. Luke's going to fill in some of the gaps for us, but just looking at Mark's account of, the, of this story, there are a couple of things that, that jump out at me. The first one is that these are ordinary men. Now, we've heard this story before. We know, we know the rest of the story. We're familiar with, with Jesus' regular interaction with just ordinary people. We know how, how Jesus would often even go out of his way to spend time with people that society thought nothing of. But if we pretend that we're hearing this for the first time, If we pretend we've never heard anything about Jesus and we just pick up Mark's gospel and begin to read, here's what we know about Jesus so far. First of all, John the Baptist had been making a big deal out of this coming Christ. He had been telling people in a a very noticeable way that somebody was coming after him who was going to be a bigger deal than he ever was. John's making this big deal about this this man coming. And then when he sees Jesus and everybody starts to see, this is the guy that John was talking about. This guy must be a really big deal. And then John baptizes him. And as if John's pronouncement of this coming big deal wasn't enough, now we have the voice of the Father in heaven say, this is my son. So there's there's this kind of, aura starting to form around this idea of who Jesus is, people are starting to take note. This man is significant. There's something very important about this Jesus from Nazareth. And so we think about who Jesus is going to pick for his team. If he's going to choose followers, who do you think everybody would expect him to choose? Well, he'd probably go after some well-known really gifted or, or smart or, or well-to-do folks. He was, he's going to go after the best of the best. Now, Jesus goes after some ordinary men. 
This would be like Sidney Crosby saying, hey, I'm going to start a new hockey team and come in here and pick a couple of us to go play hockey with him. Jesus goes after these ordinary men. These are just fishermen. These are, these, are, these are people that don't really have much status in society. And he handpicks these ordinary men to be his followers. The next thing that I notice in Mark's account here is that he invites them to learn a new skill. He invites them to become fishers of men. He says, I'm, I'm going to change your skill set a little bit here. You guys like to fish for fish. I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. But what's important about that is to notice that he doesn't, he doesn't invite them. He's not, Jesus is not looking for spectators. He's not looking for some guys that are just going to follow him around with big eyes and go, whoa, that's amazing. Or he's not looking for cheerleaders. He's not looking for, for, for he's not building this entourage of mindless men who are just going to follow him around and, and make him look good because he has a crowd around him. He invites them to a specific task. He's inviting them on his mission. He invites them to learn this new skill. And and what happens with these men is that ultimately they become the most important band of brothers that this world would ever see. It's through these ordinary men that God would turn the world upside down as he does his work through them. But these are just regular dudes. There's nothing, there's nothing special in, in society's eyes about these men. The next thing I notice in Mark's account is that they follow. They just go with Jesus. <laughs> they leave their nets. They, they, they leave their occupation. They walk away from their jobs and their homes and they go with Jesus. They follow him. Now let me show you the details that Luke gives us about this same event so that we can understand what all was going on here. Luke says in Luke 5, starting in verse 1, that on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, by the way, this is Simon Peter. This is the one that's going to become known, more prominently known as Peter, okay? Which was Simon's. He asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid from now on, you will be catching men. 
And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I love the details of this story that Luke gives us. We see that Jesus reveals himself to these men. Certainly, he, he, he was causing enough stir before this miraculous catch of fish that he at least had these four men's interest. There was a crowd around this guy. People were following him. He was, he was speaking boldly. That, that he probably already had their interest, but Jesus doesn't just want their interest. He wants their commitment. He needs them to be ready to follow. And so he reveals himself to them in a significant way. And Peter does not miss what Jesus is revealing. His response to this miraculous catch of fish tells us that that Peter was on to who this Jesus was. He says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Peter gets it. He realizes there's something holy about this man. There's something godly about him. There's something different about him. And I am not good enough to be with this guy. And he makes this strange request of Jesus. Not many people were asking Jesus to go away. Most people were trying to get close to him. But Peter saw Jesus for who he was and he was afraid. His own sin made him afraid to be too close to Jesus. But I love Jesus' response. He says, do not be afraid. For now on you will be catching men. And I wonder if Peter looked back on this experience a little bit later in his time with Jesus when Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they're saying, some people say Elijah and some people say one of the prophets. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. He says, you're the Christ, the son of God. How long did Peter know this? Was, did, it, what, did it happen in this moment or was it later on in Jesus' ministry that, that Peter began to see this? We, we don't know, but we see that from the very beginning, Peter is aware to some degree of who Jesus is. And so Jesus calls them and they drop what they're doing. They leave their job. They leave their father in the case of James and John. They leave their work and they follow him. Other men and women, as we'll see later in Mark, would desire to follow Jesus, but only if he would meet their conditions. Like these people that we see in Luke 9. It says in Luke 9, verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Many throughout Jesus' earthly life would have the opportunity to follow him, but would find the conditions of such a commitment to be too much. They would follow Jesus if Jesus would just agree to their terms, 
if Jesus would let them follow him when it's convenient for them or when they're more ready to do so, they would, they would follow Jesus under certain conditions. They would choose not to follow him ultimately and miss out on the kingdom of God. So it is today. Many would follow Jesus if Jesus would just adhere to their conditions for following him. I'll follow you, Jesus, but... I'll follow you, Jesus, when or after I. But these four men, who are essentially there from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and would be with him to the very end, they dropped their nets. They would go on to follow him everywhere he went. They would witness his suffering and his resurrection they would later see him ascend into heaven and be there when the Holy Spirit fell on them. And they would take the message of Jesus into the world. But it all began on that day when Jesus said, come follow me. And they dropped what they were doing and said, we will follow. This is what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for followers He doesn't need any more cheerleaders. He doesn't need fans. He doesn't need spectators. He doesn't even need people who believe in who he is, but don't follow. He needs people who will drop everything and go after him. I was 16 years old when Jesus called me to follow him. The weight of my personal sin was tearing me apart. The guilt and the fear that I had in living apart from Christ literally brought me to my knees in repentance before him. And the way that he handled me in that moment and the way that he showed his grace and accepted me just the way I was was my in-the-boat moment. That in the boat moment where where Peter saw Jesus properly and in that moment decided he would follow this Jesus wherever he led him. It was in that moment when I was 16 years old that I, although I didn't have all my questions answered, though I certainly didn't even have the opportunity to present to Jesus the conditions on which I wanted to follow him, I had seen enough. I knew that I wanted to follow this Jesus. I knew that I wanted to drop whatever I was doing and go after him. But you know what? When I was 16 years old, that really didn't look like a whole lot to leave behind. I had screwed up my life. Nothing was going well for me. I had done nothing but get myself into trouble and and buried myself in my own sin. And so it was easy to leave that behind. But you know what? Sometimes... We have to come back to this, this moment of decision. Now that, now that I'm a little bit older and I have a little bit more to lose, I found, I found this passage as I was preparing this message challenging me. If, if, if following Jesus today meant that I would leave everything I have behind, would I go? If it meant that I had to leave my job and to leave my home and I had to pick up my family and go somewhere else, 
and leave behind the security that I've built here in this place over the last many years? Would I go? Where would you follow Jesus? Or perhaps a better question, what would you not leave behind to follow Jesus? What would, what would your stipulations be? Can you see how those, those things right there that come to mind, the things that, that, that we say, Jesus, I'll follow you, but Jesus, I'll follow you after I. Jesus, I'll follow you if, if. Can you see how important it is for us to identify those things and to bring them to Jesus and to say, Jesus, I want to follow you no matter what. No matter what that means, no matter what that looks like, no matter what kinds of changes need to, to happen in my life, I'm with you. Wherever you're going, wherever you lead, I will follow you. That was the response of these four men. They had no answers to some really important questions, but they had seen enough and they were ready to follow Jesus is calling people to follow him today. He's looking for people who will take up their cross. He's looking for people who will count everything else as secondary. He's looking for people who want to become fishers of men. There are no mere spectators in the kingdom of God. Only followers In the kingdom of God, Jesus calls people to follow him. Let's remember that. Next, Mark tells us that Jesus began teaching in a synagogue. It says in verse 21, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. The scribes were religious leaders. They were teachers. Obviously, as you can tell from the text, they were the ones they were used to hearing teach. Jesus didn't teach like them. His his teaching surprises them because he teaches with an authority. There's, There's a tone to his teaching that's unique among them. They had heard people speak intelligently about God before. This was more than that. They had heard people speak convincingly before. This was more than that. They had heard people exposit the scriptures in in an astounding way before, but this was more than that. Jesus had an authority that astonished them. It left them asking questions, big questions. Like, what kind of man is this? That authority was the authority of God himself. Jesus has the authority of God because he is God. Jesus teaches them with authority because he has authority. And God's word is the highest level of authority that there is. John helps us with this in his account of Jesus' ministry. He begins his gospel in John 1 by saying this. He says, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. If we jump down to verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying to us, the Word and Jesus, they are one, and they are God. Jesus' words have authority because they are the words of God. In fact, he is the very Word of God made manifest. He is the Word in flesh. He is the Word made to dwell among us. The authority they were astonished by was the authority of God himself. He was speaking to them directly, and they felt it. They knew something was different. They knew there was an unusual authority that this Jesus spoke with. And so Mark is showing us that in the kingdom of God, Jesus' word is the authority. In the kingdom of God, Jesus' word is the authority. And when we say Jesus' word, ultimately we're talking about all of Scripture. We're talking about the Bible which was written by him through many authors, through the inspiration of his spirit, the Holy Spirit. Every book of the Bible carries the same authority as any other part. Sure, each part needs to be understood and interpreted properly. That's important to understand. Some parts aren't even supposed to be obeyed, if you can believe that or not. But the same authority that Jesus speaks with is the same authority that Moses and David, and Jeremiah, and Paul, and Peter, and James, and all of these biblical authors wrote with. It's the same authority. And they recognize this authority when when Jesus speaks because it's the same spirit who speaks through all of them. It's one spirit. Let's look at some verses that remind us about the nature of the word of God. Just a quick refresher on, on what we believe about the Bible, 2 Peter 1.21. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so when, when we read the Word of God, we're not just reading what men felt like saying. We're reading what the Holy Spirit of God inspired them to say, what the Holy Spirit of God carried them along to say. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Scripture is breathed out by God. It is his words that we read when we read the Bible. And ultimately, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us, for the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the authority they felt when Jesus spoke. As if God himself was speaking to them, and the words that he was saying, they were cutting into their hearts as only the word of God can do. He speaks to them with this authority and it astonishes them. And Mark wants us to remember that in the kingdom of God, we, we live under that authority. God's word is his revelation to us. It's his decree. It is his instruction. It is his command. It is his, his self-revelation. 
in the kingdom of God, we look to the word of God as our authority. No human being nor institution is above nor equal to the word of God in authority. His word is our guide, our law, our manual. It is how we get to know what he's like and what he wants and what he expects of the citizens in his kingdom. So we should ask ourselves right here at this point, are we valuing the word of God in our daily lives? Are we finding ways to get into the word regularly and to live our lives under the authority of the Bible, to live our lives attempting to do by the grace of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit to live according to his word? That's what he calls us to. Do we look to the word of God for answers to our lives' struggles? Do we look to the word of God for hope about our future? Do we interpret our experience in this world through the lens of scripture? Because in the kingdom of God, Jesus' word is the authority. Not our own thoughts, not, not what somebody else might have to say, but the word of God. And then we see while Jesus is in the synagogue and teaching with authority, this happens. It says in verse 23, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Some quick observations from this passage Okay, because we, we get into a very interesting topic here. We, we just met what, what Mark refers to as an unclean spirit, which is another way of saying demon. Quick observations, then the main point of this section. One, there's a spirit dimension to our world. We see already in Mark's gospel, in just the first, the first chapter, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at baptism. So we already see one thing happening in the spirit world. Then we see Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness and then angels coming to minister to him. Either, I don't know if that was throughout the whole time in the wilderness or at the end after Satan had left. So we've got the Holy Spirit, we've got Satan, we've got angels just in the first few verses of Mark and now we meet a man with a demon. There is a spirit dimension our world, though it's not as observable or noticeable at times as the natural world that we see, there is a spiritual dimension to this world. And in that spiritual dimension is the battle for our eternity. It's extremely important. The next thing, next observation I want to point out, that this demon is possessing a human being. And as crazy as that is, that's not the thing that they're concerned with. Apparently, they had seen this before. We can't, 
We don't know that for sure. We will see later that this is a common occurrence that we see people bringing to Jesus those who are possessed by demons. They're more concerned with the fact that this demon listened to Jesus than the fact that this demon possessed and controlled a human being. And so if we are to believe this story from Scripture, we know that demons can possess human beings. Now we know from elsewhere that demons cannot possess Christians. Christians are already possessed by another spirit, the Holy Spirit, and no demon can enter into a Christian. But we do see here that this demon is possessing a human being. Now some would say, I've even heard the, the argument, because sometimes these demon-possessed people that we see in the Gospels, they, they, act, they act in ways that remind us of other more natural occurrences or diseases, They act at times like epileptics. Sometimes they act like schizophrenics. But I've never, listened to what this, I've never seen an epileptic during a seizure say, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is not a schizophrenic. This is not an epileptic. This is a demon-possessed man. And that's the third thing, the observation, third observation I want to make here is that this demon knows exactly who Jesus is. Did you hear what he said? He said, first he says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? That's how everybody knew him. He's not revealing anything new to anybody. They all know this guy as Jesus of Nazareth. But then he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, how interesting is this? This demon is speaking to Jesus, and he, he chooses it, he, she, I don't know. The demon chooses to reveal the true identity of Jesus, the Holy One of God. This reminds me of the show Scooby-Doo. In Scooby-Doo, there's, there's always somebody pretending, it's always a human being dressed up like some sort of supernatural creature and harassing people. And the conclusion of the show is always when the gang catches up to this person who's dressed up like some sort of supernatural creature, and they reveal this person's true identity. They've already, they've already identified who it is. Now it's time to rip off the mask and show that this is just a human being dressed up as a supernatural creature. Well, here we have the opposite. We have a supernatural being disguised as a mere human. And it's the demon who knows who he is. Everybody else is wondering, who's this Jesus? What's up with this guy? He's doing crazy stuff. The demon knows. The demon knows exactly who he is. Why does the demon know who Jesus is? Well, because the demon has known who Jesus is since the beginning of its existence. The demon has always known Jesus. Jesus created this demon. This demon used to live in heaven worshiping Jesus before he rebelled and followed Satan. He knows who he is because he has seen him many times before. He has worshiped him. He has existed always in his presence before the rebellion. And he's very upset to find out that this Jesus has caught up with him here in this synagogue. He kind of had a good thing going. 
he, was, he had found a nice, comfortable place to hang out for a while and harass people and to oppose the kingdom of God here on earth. And Jesus catches up to him. You might remember from our last sermon series, James 2.19, where it says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. And you'll see this all throughout Mark. The demons have the most accurate view of who Jesus is of anyone. We'll see in chapter 3 that they repeatedly refer to Jesus as the Son of God. You might have to understand, nobody else is calling Jesus the Son of God at the time. But the demons know long before the human beings catch up to this information. They know who he is. They believe, James reminds us, but they're not saved by it and they shudder at it. Which brings me to the main point I want to make from this little part of our passage. In the kingdom of God, Jesus commands even the demons. In the kingdom of God, Jesus commands even the demons. So let me recap. Now, I, I, let me just finish up on this, this whole topic of demons and the spiritual world. That's as far as we're going to go with that message today. That raises a lot of questions. Some of those questions have answers in Scripture and some of them don't. We just have to live with the answers that we don't have that we would like to have. But we do see... Mark's gospel already saturated with evidences of the spiritual world interacting with the natural. So let me recap some things that we're seeing regarding the kingdom of God. First, it's an invisible kingdom right now that is made up of citizens who have joined by repenting and believing or being born again. In this kingdom, Jesus is calling us to follow him. His word is our authority, and in this kingdom, he commands even the demons. So the most important question to be asked in light of all of this, all of this information about the kingdom of God is this, are you in? Are you a member, a citizen of the kingdom of God? Are you willing and ready to leave everything behind, to count everything else as secondary, to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Are you ready to live under the authority of his word? Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Have you done that? Have you repented and believed in the gospel? Are you trusting in the work of Jesus? If you haven't done that yet, are you ready now? Do you want to, do you want to follow from this moment forward? Is today the day you say, I'm going to follow him wherever he leads? I'll leave everything else behind if that's what it means. You know, you, th- you think about those, those objections that people, people raised earlier when they, when they s- said to him, I'll, I'll follow you. And Jesus said, great, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, this is not going to be an easy road if you want to follow me. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. 
So are you ready to say, I don't, I don't care if I don't know where I'm going to lay my head. I'm not going to look back. I'm, gonna, I'm ready to put my hand to the plow. I've seen enough. I've heard enough. I'm in with Jesus. I'm going wherever he's leading. Jesus, count me in. If you want to do that, then I would encourage you today to repent. That means to turn from your sin. And believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. Believe that he wants you to be a citizen in his kingdom. And do it today. But if you've already done that, I want to I ask you to, to do what I've been doing all week long, which is to really stop and think, man, am I, putting, am I putting stipulations on how far I'm willing to follow Jesus? Is there something I'm not willing to give up? Or have I just totally abandoned the idea of following him and become a spectator or a fan? Have I just become a Jesus cheerleader? Do I just go to church and say, that's great, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll sing the songs, and, and I'll sit through the sermon, but there's really nothing else going on in my life that has to do with following Jesus. If that's you, I want you to repent too. I want you to repent and make the commitment that you'll follow him wherever, no matter what it costs, that you're going to be a part of this kingdom, that he can count you in. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.